Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football for our first show of 2024. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgerty to run the rule over the past week in the world game. And the gang is back. So first edition news will be with Willem van Denderen shortly. For regular listeners, you'll know that Willem started out as our cub reporter after the World Cup in Russia. And after a break travelling around Europe, he returns as our man over in the continent. I think he's in the Netherlands as we speak. So looking forward to his return to the mic shortly. And of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now, first up, the Asian Cup in Qatar is just days away with the home side beginning their campaign against Lebanon in the early hours of Saturday morning our time. Later that evening, the Socceroos take on India, who at 300-1 for the tournament should not prove too difficult a task. To overcome, but with Australia on the fourth line of betting with Japan, South Korea, and Iran, Graham Arnold will want to get their campaign off to a convincing start. We'll talk about it all and preview the tournament with South Korean football expert from Forbes magazine, Steve Price. Then, in one of the other great tournaments of international football, the African Cup of Nations, AFCON, begins this weekend in the Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire who last held the tournament 40 years ago. The Elephants begin against African Minnow Guinea-Bissau, hunting their third title, but it will be a mighty competition with Morocco favourites following their World Cup heroics, seven times champions, Egypt desperate to win one for Mo Salah, defending champions Senegal and, of course, other powerhouses like Algeria, Cameroon, Nigeria, Tunisia and Ghana. It all begins at 7am our time on Sunday morning, Eastern summertime that is of course we'll preview it all with rob stevens from the bbc in africa now edge we do have a a jam-packed show lined up we'll bring all the domestic and international news as well but sadly the biggest news of the week broke in the last 24 hours as we record and that is of course that arguably our greatest and certainly most decorated footballer sam kerr has done her anterior cruciate ligament on the eve of the final Olympic qualifiers and he's out of the game for 12 months. So devastating news for Sam and football in this country, mate. Uh, Before I comment on that, just a hello to you, Rob, and to Derek and a big um, uh, Happy New Year and welcome um, back to the program to Willem van Denneren. Yes, look, this is just devastating news, isn't it, for Samantha Kerr, uh, the Matildas. And and can I just say it's probably devastating news for the Australian Olympic team. Mm -hmm. I think she would be the biggest name in the Australian Olympic team heading over to Paris. Um, so um, the Olympic teams lost uh, the, you know, the, the profile and the media coverage that Samantha brings w- with whatever she does. So, yeah, look, let's just hope that um, the prognosis for her, that uh, the surgery um, and then obviously the recovery all goes textbook and that we can get her back. Um, she's young enough to overcome this and, uh, and have... Uh, a sparkling uh, final third of her career, no doubt about that. Um, but obviously, despite the sadness, we've got to look to what where to from here. So when you look at that forward group, Rob, Ford, Fowler, Rasso, Bagnangmond, Vine and Yallop, they're pretty much locks, you would think. You take care out of that um, and there's enough sort of combinations to essentially cover Sam Kerr like we did in the group stage of the World Cup in Australia last year. But it opens the question, who is the one player that comes into that forward? Take out the defensive midfielders, Gorry, Cooney, Cross and Wheeler, who have been mainstays through all the squads. Um, who out of the remaining players goes in 
to the one extra sort of player in the forward line. And you'd have to say that um, in the Canada squad, they took um, Alex Chidiak and Remy Seamson. Um, and with Kaloui Garzo's form in the A-League women's competition and maybe even Michelle Heyman, the veteran, she's in great shape and mm -hmm. uh, playing very well for Canberra despite their lowly uh, status on the table. You'd have to say that... Um, there's a bit of thinking to do for the Brains Trust at the Matildas. Do they take a young player to Uzbekistan like a Chidiak or Simpson, or do they go for some experience and look to um, get the most out of uh, the World Cup? It's an interesting one. I'm probably um, thinking that that forward group is pretty good, but we've got some young players in there. I'd like to maybe get some experience and uh, maybe Lagazzo or Heyman could be considered. Well, interesting we one. It is, and uh, and we will get uh, another expert on the women's uh, game as we get a little closer to those Uzbekistan ties and and break it down a little uh, a little more detail because uh, obviously uh, we're going to find that out sooner than later. Before we go to Willem, Derek, happy New Year to you too, mate. Been watching lots of football. Yeah, I've been watching lots of football. I've been kind of hiding behind behind the couch in recent weeks with the, uh, the downturn in fortune for the Gunners. It's been a pretty painful couple of weeks for myself and and uh, edge and adam in particular as we uh, see the annual the wheels put, uh, falling off uh of our arsenal season so uh but yeah look obviously plenty plenty to be watching apart from that uh that's for sure Yes, and I have been taking a lead from you, Derek, and not gloating too much on our WhatsApp chat because uh, I know, as my great father would say, you can be a rooster one day and a feather the dust of the next. So as happy as I am with the way things are rolling, um, there is a lot to come. And as the drum roll begins, Willem, uh, you've uh, you've been travelling the length and breadth of Europe. Um, you've uh, found yourself in Netherlands, the Netherlands right now, the, the country of your ancestors. Mate, welcome back to the show. Thank you, gents. Really excited to be back. Happy New Year to all of you. Rob, you mentioned off the top my five years with Box to Box, and I was looking forward to a break as I, I left you guys in sort of mid-November. And then it is funny how you walk around the other side of the world by yourself, a little bit lonely, feel like a chat with some friends, throw the podcast on, and I've listened to probably every minute of you three blokes uh, rabbiting on over the past couple of months. So no, good to be back. Um, and what a time for, for football, really. The A-League has been brilliant. What I've seen over to, of it, it's on a, at a pretty good time here and all uh, all streamed free on YouTube uh, in the Netherlands. Got to a couple of big bucket listers as well, which I'm pretty happy about. Got to Tottenham's new stadium just before Christmas to see them beat Everton and then uh, the reverse fixture up in uh, in Liverpool at the other side of the thing. Uh, Goodison Park has, has long been a, a bit of a bucket lister and that is obviously on borrowed time. So I got there uh, to see Everton against Man City. But Sam Kerr News has put a, a bit of a dampener on things. But other than that, it's all positive going forward. The Asian Cup is just days away and the Socceroos have defeated Bahrain 2-0 in their one and only warm-up match. Mitch Duke on the score sheet as Craig Goodwin registered two assists. Sam Silvera and Gethin Jones were handed chances to stake claims for starts in the tournament proper while Jordi Boss was preferred to Aziz Bayic at left-back. The Asian Cup kicks off in the early hours of Saturday morning as Lebanon meet the hosts Qatar. Australia's first match comes later that day against India on Saturday evening Australian time. So so, Edge, you have labelled Graham Arnold the king of building depth. He's now got to sharpen the knife a little bit on that starting 11. And there are a couple of questions, particularly uh, in defence. I know you went through your starting 11 a couple of shows ago, but very quickly, rapid fire. Boss or Bates on the left for you? Bates. Jones, Atkinson or Lewis Miller on the right. That is Gethin Jones, the debutante, who was pretty solid defensively, but again, they weren't really tested in that regard. Jones. 
and then either Cam Burgess or the tried and tested Kai Rolls to partner Sutar in the centre. That's interesting. It looks like he's going to um, prefer Cam Burgess than Kai Rolls, who I thought was unbelievably good in the uh, World Cup with him, Kai Rolls. And then it'll be either Matt Ryan or Joe Gauchi, who's put his nose ahead of Lawrence Thomas for that uh, second what about, what about goalkeeping position. Well, I think have... Boyle will certainly play ahead of Silvera. He was deeply in uh, deep in the cotton wool given his injury history just ahead of these major tournaments. So I think the Boiler is finally ready to let rip at a, a major tournament across the front line there. Managerial appointments. Harry Kuehl has been announced as Yokohama F. Marinos's new manager. He departs Celtic after 18 months as an assistant to become the Japanese club's third straight Aussie boss. Kuehl senior managerial record. I'm sorry, Rob, it should be said. He's, he's pretty unconvincing. His best spell came with Crawley Town in 2017-18 in League Two. He left that position of his own accord, but was then moved on by all of Notts County, Oldham Athletic and Barnet. In contrast, Brisbane Raw's new manager is Ben Kahn, who at 35, you could say, is a career manager. For some time, he's been one of the NPL's highest rated prospects at Olympic FC in Queensland and Melbourne Knights uh, and the Central Coast uh, Central Coast Mariners as well. Now, Derek, I wanted to bring you in here, not to speak on these two individuals in particular, but more to the broader idea of the career manager, someone whose playing days came to a close maybe earlier than they would have liked, uh, as opposed to the likes of a Wayne Rooney, who we've just seen moved on by Birmingham, Stephen Gerrard, who is battling in Saudi Arabia by all reports, and Frank Lampard, who hasn't quite made it stick in a few different uh, spots, versus someone like a Julian Nagelsmann or a Ben Kahn at, uh, at Australian level. Have we reached the point, do we reach it long ago, that these legendary players who go sort of deep into their 30s and maybe at something of a disadvantage against these sort of, yeah, as I say, career coaches? Yes, uh, a perennial and always interesting question, Willem. Uh, you know, you also, if you go further back, you could also mention Arsene Wenger, didn't have a particularly distinguished footballing career. Jose Mourinho was a translator, I believe. Um, Alex Ferguson was a fine player, but had his injury, his, his career cut short by injury, as did Brian Clough. So there, there is a theme emerging here that, um, you know, people that didn't necessarily go all the way either have distinguished careers as managers, as a player, sorry, like Sean Dyche, for example, not, not a distinguished playing in particular, but a, but a strong manager. Um, or, or people like Ange Postacoglu, who had his career cut short with injury. Um, and then, yeah, you've got this so-called golden generation from England in particular who, you know, and then you throw in Gary Neville and Phil Neville's uh, woeful management careers, uh, such as they are and were as well. And it's not painting a really, not painting a really good picture. Jürgen Klopp wasn't particularly distinguished either. I suppose you look at someone like Guardiola. He had a really great career at, at Barcelona, but he almost bucks the trend in a way. Um, Arteta had a pretty good career uh, and he's doing okay as a manager, albeit still kind of in his sophomore phase at the moment. So I think there's something about the hunger that comes from either having not extracted everything out of the game because of injury or just the necessity you need to extract. So if you want to have a the, these, you know, unlike Gerard and Lampard and Rooney who have earned barrelfuls of money in their career, they don't really need to be football managers. It's not an existential crisis. For them, you know, maybe their wives want them out of the house, but they don't need to be. They don't need to be managers. And look, I mean, Birmingham have been bitten twice now because you'll remember they got rid of Gary Rowett, and then they put in Gianfranco Zola. That was a complete disaster. 
and then they got rid of John Eustace, a similar kind of profile to to uh, Rowett. They were um, fourth or fifth in the league, and I just get the impression that some of these new new generation of owners just like having Rooney in their mobile phone. The fact they can give Rooney a call and talk about signings and whatever. They don't want to ring John Eustace. And I think I, I shared something in our personal WhatsApp uh, the group for this show that was really cringe that Rooney being appointed to um, uh, increase the global impact of Birmingham City. What does that even mean? And how is that going to happen in the first place? So to, to have global impact, you need to be in the Premier League. <laughs> You know, you're not going to be cascading down the league with a kind of trophy manager. So, yeah, look, I think there's a lot to be said about employing people less on their football pedigree, uh, their career, and, and a lot to do with, uh, uh, you know, their attitude and ambitions. But if you can get both like Guardiola, it's pretty special. Good luck to Harry Kuehl. Rob, we know that Box to Box cannot end until he is Socceroos manager. So this uh, this this move's going to have to work. And good luck to Ben Khan. Those who sort of watch and operate around the MPL level have been pretty excited about him for a uh, for a long time. There's that much to get through. There's there's top lines out of the A-League men's and women's, of course. There's AFCON, but there will be time for all of that uh, throughout the show. We will close with a bit of Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. I've been lucky to see a little bit of the world and some of it thanks to the Green and Gold Army. But if there is one place that looms uh, that I would really love to get to one day that I haven't, that is Uzbekistan Edge. And I remember Roston Griffiths of Melbourne City and, and Central Coast describing it as a fascinating and bizarre uh, place during his time with uh, Pactacor Tashkent. Uh, the guys on the Asian Game podcast sing along pretty similar lines. So very briefly, what has it got to offer? Uh, it's a fantastic uh, six day, uh, so a seven day, six night program, um, mixing the unbelievable culture and history and uh, amazing historic sites of the ancient Silk Road with supporting the Matildas on the away terrace in Tashkent. It's going to be a fabulous tour. Um, already a great little group of people that are that are going, Matildas fans, and I'm looking forward to joining them on the Silk Road and uh, learning all about the history, um, enjoying some fabulous tourism moments with them, and then obviously cheering the Matildas home without Sam Kerr, uh, getting them a win on the road to uh, return to the packed house at uh, Docklands, Rob, and the Matildas will hopefully get the job done there. Hopefully they will. I think um, the the um, journey is going to be as rocky as the landscape of that country, but uh, hopefully um, by the time we do get there, it'll have been worthwhile. And uh, Willem, um, any other little bits before we go? Or, yeah, uh, yeah a couple. No, no, just a couple of names to mention. So big congratulations to Charlotte or Charlie Grant, who has sealed a move to Tottenham until 2026, if you don't mind. Uh, her first chance to debut comes against Sheffield United in the FA Cup on January 15. You'd expect to see her in Uzbekistan edge. Uh, Riley McGree and Sam Silvera, not with Middlesbrough, but Tom Glover, uh, certainly at the centre of attention. He started their last six uh, and very nearly kept a clean sheet against Aston Villa. And a few minutes off the bench in the FA Cup for a couple of fringe Australians. Cam Perpion coming through at Brighton. They defeated Stoke City 4-2. And for Tyrese Francois, uh, who's been peripheral at Fulham, but did partake in their 1-0 win over Rotherham. So the important thing for those two gents, Rob, is that they won, hopefully with the uh, the possibility of some more cup minutes not too far down the track. And also Katrina Gorry heading to West Ham. All right. Well, um, one of the upsides of uh, Willem coming back to the show is that uh, he jumps in and uh, 
takes over one of uh, the usual segments and that next one is the preview, our preview of the Asian Cup in Qatar, which is just under a week away. As we've said uh, throughout the opening of the show, we have uh, got the pleasure of uh, returning to the show after quite a break uh, from South Korea, the football expert that writes uh, for uh, the Forbes magazine, Steve Price, um, coming up. So I'm going to take a seat on the bench and and enjoy uh, uh, Willem and, and Edge uh, going through all of the uh, the uh, the minutia of the event uh, that is uh, is uh, to come in just a few days' time. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. The football world, as we know, moves at a rapid pace. But if there's one tournament that we have had to be a bit patient for, it's the Asian Cup. Originally slated to be played in China in June to July of 2023, its relocation to Qatar means it is fully five years since our stand-in hosts lifted the title in the UAE. Steve Price is a senior contributor for Forbes' online publication. He's a South Korean football expert in particular, and he's been hard at work punching out comprehensive previews for this tournament. And he joins us now. Steve, welcome back to box to box Hey, yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's been a long time since we spoke, if I recall. It was when the, the K-League was the first to restart post that initial wave of COVID in sort of mid-2020. So really nice to speak again. We'll start with our, our stand-in hosts, as I've called them there, Qatar. Uh, they've been at the centre of Asian football and sort of world football more broadly for a long time now. They did win this tournament five years ago, but then took the bulk of that sort of ageing squad to the home World Cup and uh, didn't really succeed by any measure. They've just had a coaching change as well within the past month. So where do we find them now? Yeah, I mean, they're the hosts this time, of course. Um, us here in South Korea, we're hoping that the tournament will be uh, hosted here. It looked like it because um, Korea and China were going up for it. Uh, and then you know, China got it originally. So it seemed that South Korea would be the one that would get to host it. But it seems to be in Qatar this year. And you think, yeah, they're the hosts and the holders. So, you know, in normal circumstances, you're gonna, I think they're definitely going to be the favourites to win it. Right, but uh, it, it doesn't seem to be that way. Uh, you know, when we think back to the World Cup, Qatar didn't really do that well in the World Cup, losing all their games. Um, I mean, they, they weren't awful, but they, they weren't uh, weren't anything special for the hosts. And then after that, uh, Felix Sanchez, the coach who won the Asian Cup with them last time, and kind of developed all those players um, through their youth team all the way up to the Asian Cup. He kind of left, so. They've had a, that kind of change. Carlos Carlos came in. He couldn't quite do it. And now we've got Tintin Martinez coming in as well as their new coach. Uh, so there's been a lot of changes. They haven't really done much uh, in 2023. They only won six games out of the 17 matches they played, which is quite a lot. Um, but one big plus side for them is that Alnawaz Ali, who was, of course, the top scorer at the Asian Cup in 2019 with nine goals he's still bang on form he's actually uh, scored a hat-trick against Cambodia on the last day of December in one of their warm-up matches he smashed in four goals against Afghanistan in the World Cup qualifiers in November so they've got a player who can score goals and that always gives you a chance doesn't it no most certainly does I want to ask you about uh, South Korea as well where, where you are they they won the first two Asian Cups in 19 uh, 56 and 60, but haven't saluted since, and they've lost four finals along the way. And that just doesn't quite sit right for, for such a powerhouse in the region. Four years under Paolo Bento has uh, have come to a close, and they're now led by a huge name uh, in Jurgen Klinsmann, as well as 
the biggest name in the, at the tournament on the pitch, Son Hyung Min. So how are the expectations uh, ahead of what looks a pretty manageable group of Malaysia, Jordan and Bahrain? Yeah, it's been 60 years of hurt here for South Korea. For some reason, they just can't do it in the Asian Cup. Uh, uh, but maybe this year is going to be one of their you know, best chances yet because their team just looks so strong on paper. Um, of course, you mentioned Son Heung Min. Uh, usually the tactic is, of course, everybody mark him, put two men on him, stop him from doing anything and try and blunt South Korea's attack that way. But I think this, this year is a bit different because uh, because of the emergence of Yi Gang-in from uh, Paris Saint-Germain. He's been e- exceptional uh, for South Korea and I think sort of in the World Cup qualifier against, um, against Thailand uh, back in November. He was the guy who kind of created the chance of a great great ball in to uh, set up the goal to unlock Thailand in that game. And I think he's, he showed a bit of that also in uh, the match against Iraq uh, earlier this week in uh, that warm-up match. Yeah, they've got that uh, ability now to unlock teams from multiple angles uh, with Yi Gang-in and Son min both being able to do that. And of course, they've got Huang Yi-chan also scoring the goals in the Premier League this season. So they've got a lot going on there. But they're also they have um, probably the best defender in the world, uh, at least according to the Ballon d'Or list, uh, with Kim Min-jae, who, of course, helped Napoli win Serie A title. He's the most expensive player in Asia for his move to, to Bayern Munich. So they've got that strength at the back as well, which is going to be huge for them. Uh, Jürgen Klinsmann had you know, a lot of doubters here in South Korea when he uh, got the job, and they started pretty badly. Uh, he didn't win in his first four or five games. Uh, and he also spent a lot of time outside the country. So he had so much criticism, but they've now won six games in a row. Uh, I think they haven't conceded in any of those six or in the game before that either, and they're scoring plenty of goals. So at the moment, they're bang on form. And uh, if they're ever going to win another Asian Cup, this could be the chance. Steve, obviously the other big Asian heavyweight, the Samurai Blue, Japan. Um, They've got an almost entirely European-based squad. You expect them to be uh, one of the favourites in the tournament, no doubt. They'll be on the same line of betting, I'd imagine, with Korea uh, and Iran and Australia. However, what surprised me in your article was the acknowledgement that the three keepers they've chosen, between them, they only have five senior caps. What's the background of that? Yeah, and... uh... Also, some of the, the keepers who weren't selected didn't have many caps either. <laughs> it's a strange one there. Um, but I think they're kind of putting a lot of faith in uh, Zion Suzuki, which uh, kind of seems to be a smart move because Manchester United were after him uh, back in the summer. So uh, he's obviously got huge potential to uh, to be a world-class goalkeeper. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he deals with the pressure in the latter stages of the tournament because... Uh, it's quite a, a strange one. You know, normally you expect the goalkeeper to have loads of caps. You kind of keep the same one, have that kind of consistency in your team. And sometimes changing the goalkeeper and not having somebody who the defence know really well can be a problem. So that's definitely something to look out for, especially as the whole of their squads, uh, apart from that position, looks like incredibly strong. They don't have any real weaknesses. You can see how strong they are by some of the players they left out of the team. Uh, we've got, you know, Al Tanaka from uh, Fortuna Dusseldorf. He actually scored against Spain in the World Cup uh, for Japan. He's not in the team. We've got Hyogo Furuhashi from Celtic, who's you know, always always seems to be scoring goals whenever 
Sajak on the TV here. Uh, he's not in the team. So I don't think there'll be many teams in this Asian Cup who will be able to leave out players of that calibre. And I guess that shows how strong Japan are. Certainly doesn't. What about, let's talk about our local market, uh, the people that you're talking to, Australia. Um, the mood in Australia is pretty buoyant and optimistic after a good showing at the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. We know Doha well. However, um, the Socceroos have turned over quite a few players from the Qatar squad. Uh, 14 new players uh, going to their first major tournament. Where do you see the Socceroos and how far can Australia go under the stewardship of Graham Arnold? Yeah, I mean, there's so few players uh, who are you know, at the World Cup who are, <laughs> who are playing in this Asian Cup for Australia. Uh, it's a bit of a strange one, a, a bit of a, a new squad. Lots of teams generally uh, kind of start their cycle again after this tournament when you have the four years leading up to the World Cup. And so this is, uh, and if you look at Iran, for example, uh, this is probably their last uh, cycle of the players they've got. But Australia seems to have, kind of changed their players a bit early, earlier than like most teams would by doing it before the Asian Cup, which is a bit of a strange one. Um, a bit worried by Australia seem to like lack the stars that they had in the past. And then you've got guys like Harry Suter, for example, who's he's really struggled for game time at Leicester City this year. Um, there seems to be a, a few other players like that. So it's a bit worrying. Um, you can see like they're bringing in uh, guys like Bruno Fonarelli, who's... You know, He's uh, yeah, towards the end of his career. Uh, he's of course he played for Uruguay once, kind of um, benefited for FIFA's uh, rules to allow you to change nationality to come in for Australia. So um, yeah, they're trying these these kind of new players, but they're not like up and coming players for the next ten years or so. In in cases like uh, like him, uh, but there's something which kind of tells me to not write off Australia, uh, even that, even though they don't have. Yeah, the big names of the past, they um, they always seem to be able to do it. They have that kind of, I don't know, team mentality, which just gets them through tournaments, kind of sometimes they'll have to win through a scrappy game, but they always seem to do it. Quite interestingly, I think their group is the most interesting one, Group B, because uh, yeah, all the other teams in that group are a little bit stronger than maybe some of the teams in the other group. So it's quite an even group. Maybe uh, if Australia get through that group, well, that's going to give them a benefit by playing those tougher opponents uh, to kind of get them up to speed as the tournament goes on. And Steve, if we can just hold you for one more, we, the Socceroos Australia, have had some full-on battles over the past couple of years with Saudi Arabia, and they now enter this tournament with a huge name on the touchline. Uh, Roberto Mancini, having won uh, a Premier League with Manchester City, the Euros with Italy, uh, is now at the helm. He hasn't been there for too long, so what are you expecting under uh, under his leadership for uh, for the Green Falcons this time around? Yeah, I mean, of course, these days, Italy are not the big name that they used to be. They're not winning a World Cup and so they actually didn't qualify for several recent World Cups, but he somehow managed to get that team who were completely unfancied and get them to win Euro 2020. So that was a huge triumph for him. It shows how good of a manager he is, especially in tournaments like this. So um, for him to be there at Saudi Arabia, that's the perfect manager to have for a tournament like the Asian Cup, in my opinion. And it's going to be interesting with uh, Saudi Arabia, though, yeah, it's a bit like Qatar last time. They want to show like this new image of themselves with uh, everything that's going on with the Saudi Pro League and uh, all like their attempts to host the World Cup and things like that. So they're really going to be wanting to show that in this tournament. 
but of course, they did well at the World Cup. Um, they got that result against Argentina, so they can play football. And you know, you wonder if you're playing with all those stars, you know, Ronaldo, Benzema, and stuff in the Pro League, how much that rubs off on the Saudi players who all do play domestically. Uh, Salam al-Jassari, he's like the, the star player of Saudi Arabia, seems to have uh, really upped his game this season in the Saudi Pro League. He's uh, the Ali al captain. He scored nine goals. He's got four assists. Uh, his team are winning the league. So for him, it looks like it has rubbed off. It'll be interesting to see how that works out for the rest of the players because uh, if that does help them and then they have Mancini, a manager who knows how to win these tournaments, they're going to be a very dangerous opponent for whoever faces them. Steve, fantastic to chat. There are there are many sides I've probably done a, a disservice to in not asking you about Iran, Iraq, uh, former winners. Then there's the, the the sort of perennial rising powers, if you like, in, in Thailand and Vietnam. There There is that much intrigue and, and interest in this tournament. So if you would like to know a little bit more, please do find Steve on Twitter at K-League Football and you can find his previews at Forbes.com. And there's also some AFCON previews uh, from Steve there as well. So you really have been uh, cranking them out, Steve. As I say, awesome to chat. Uh, hugely excited about the tournament ahead and uh, we'd love to have you on again as it uh, unfolds if possible. So uh, thank you once again, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me on and enjoy the tournament. Steve Price of Forbes.com there. Stick around. On the other side, Michael and I are going to jump out. Rob and Derek will be back and they're going to be joined by Rob Stevens of BBC BBC Sport Africa to jump into that very tournament, AFCON. Hey, hey guys. Uh, We love football on this show, of course, but we also love every other sport that's played at the top level and it's almost time for the Australian Open tennis to begin and at Chemist Warehouse all they slice is the prices so stock up right now and save at Chemist Warehouse with half price off nature's own vitamins now Edge uh, your little booty bag must be getting a little bit uh, empty by now no no it's going well Oh, you well. did stop. You stopped up well. Yeah, well, I just so. spent too much money there. <laughs> you can never spend too much money there, mate. Hey, um, I'm going to get on down there and buy some of that executive stress B because the working year is about to start and I need to load up on that to make sure that I'm calm throughout the year or as calm as I can be. And then at the other end of the day, the Nature Zone Complete Sleep Advanced is a great little product that really helps you get off to sleep, contains Zisyphus to calm the nerves and reduce the time to fall asleep. So uh, do you ever need that sort of stuff, Edge, when you're uh, when you're going off or are you always just so busy, busiest man in the world as you are? Uh, you're just so tired to just fall asleep. I could have used a bit of it last night. I was uh, tossing and turning a little bit, but no, normally I sleep very well, Rob. All right, I might have to get you uh, some of that for that odd occasion that you do toss and turn. Chemist Warehouse are making it easier for you to get your essential items. In addition to visiting your local Chemist Warehouse store, order online and click and collect to save time or choose fast delivery for same-day home delivery. T's and C's and charges may apply. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings are every single day. to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Well, we've previewed the Asian Cup, which starts this weekend in Qatar. And as we said off the top of the show, the other great tournament that begins this weekend is the African Cup of Nations in the Ivory Coast or Côte d'Ivoire, who are hosting the tournament again after a 40-year break. And we welcome to talk about, uh, well, we talked to this man before the, the last African Cup of Nations and some of his predictions proved correct. Rob Stevens from the BBC. How are you, Rob? 
Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Just uh, counting down the days until AFCON kicks off in Ivory Coast, and I'm very excited about it, for sure. Oh, and good reason to be is, uh, you know, I know as I did a deep dive into the tournament preparing for our chat, uh, you just realise what a what a buffet of football it's going to be with, uh, you know, some of the great names of of African football um, as nations and, and players uh, that play around the world. But let's start with the hosts. So Ivory Coast, they last staged the tournament in 1984. The tournament was initially, this tournament was initially planned to take place in 2023 during the Northern Hemisphere summer to reduce scheduling conflicts that it had done in Cameroon on the prior renewal um, with uh, European competitions, but it was postponed due to adverse summer weather concerns in the Ivory Coast. But as I was listening to some of those pundits that I referred to earlier, the Ivorians may have dodged a bullet as the delay seems to have given them more time to prepare. So I guess the big question is, are they ready? Yeah, for for once, for the preparations of dogs so many African countries in the past getting ready for this tournament. Uh, amazingly, they were supposed to host in 2021. Mm. Um, but then because of Cameroon weren't ready for that one. Um, it Basically, a, a lot of African countries have trouble preparing. Cameroon was supposed to originally host in 2019. They weren't ready. That went to Egypt. So Cameroon were going to host in 2021 instead. That's when Ivory Coast were going to host. So Ivory Coast was shunted back another two years. So basically three tournaments in a row have changed their proposed hosts. Mm. And now this time, given that two-year delay and then an extra six months because of the avoiding the rainy season in West Africa, mm. Ivory Coast are hosting now and are completely ready. So all the all the stadiums are ready. The two in Corhogo and San Pedro have already hosted games in the Women's Champions League. The two, uh, the one has been rebuilt in Abidjan. One has been built from fresh in Abidjan. So f- through the six stadiums and the five host cities is already the infrastructure's there. So on this occasion, there aren't any concerns about pitches or anything like that mm-hmm. necessarily. <laughs> yeah, no, exciting stuff, but they always seem to, to pull it off, um, no matter what. I mean, and we, uh, and it's not just the African countries as well. We've seen plenty of other countries around the world that have had struggles uh, uh, to put on the big events. So, to the team itself, uh, they are one of the favourites, um, and you know, as close watchers of football will know, that past names uh, uh, count amongst some of the, the greats of football: Didier Drogba, the Toure brothers. Um, and it used to be a regular thing in AFCON as I was looking through uh, the history of the tournament that 11 times since the tournament began in 1957, the home side have won. But in the past eight editions, it's been a visiting side. So Jean-Louis Gasset, he's a, a, a Frenchman, uh, well-versed with the, the French diaspora of which uh, the Côte d'Ivoire was formerly a colony. Uh, can, can he get the job done on home soil with this team? Yeah, I think they are definitely going to be one of the, for me, one of the four standout favourites. Um, you mentioned that long wait for a um, for a home team to win it. It could be Ivory Coast. They've got they've got a few worries. You'd say that um, their mainline striker Sebastian Haller, um, he's been lacking goals so far this season for Borussia Dortmund. Of course, he's he's come back from uh, testicular cancer, which is an incredible story in itself. Um, but perhaps at the moment they're they're more driven by their midfielders, which is Seko Fofana, Frank Kessie, and Ibrahim Singare of uh, of Nottingham Forest. But they've been in decent form recently. They haven't necessarily played any any of the big guns um, or you know uh, any bigger teams in World Cup qualifi- qualification. They beat the Seychelles. Um, I think it was nine uh, nil that they beat them, and then they warmed up with a friendly over the weekend, beating uh, Sierra Leone five one. But they've got some other interesting 
interesting attacking talent that, that they've got there. Um, they've got this uh, lad, uh, Jean-Philippe Crasso. I call him a lad. He's, he's 26, but he's been in good form for Red Star Belgrade. The the young one to watch is Karim Kanate. He's uh, a teenager at uh, RB Salzburg in Aus- Austria. He's got eight goals in 17 so far this season. They've got some other good attacking talent, the likes of Jonathan Bamba, uh, Max Allen Gradel, Nicola Pepe, uh, the young Brighton forward Simon Adingra. He might he might be a doubt with um, with injury, actually, a hamstring injury. But I think that they've got the strength there in midfield uh, and in, in the forward line to definitely go deep in the tournament. They've got a original tricky, uh, a tricky group in a way to get through because they've got Nigeria, another um, uh, continental heavyweight who won it three times. Uh, Equatorial Guinea caused some surprises at the last tournament, but I think that the Ivory Coast should have enough to go deep in this tournament for sure, Rob. Uh, how about uh, the defending champions, Senegal, uh, obviously they've uh, been put in something that is a bit of a group of death, by the, but as some people have called it, Cameroon, Guinea, Gambia. I mean, are they struggling just to get out of this group or are they going to get through this and, and, and get close in the tournament? I think I think they'll be okay. I, I think I, I'm backing them to get through it. Um, their squad isn't necessarily too much changed from, from how it was a couple of years ago, although... Uh, the one concern that has been raised is the fact that three of their key players, Sadio Mane, chief amongst them, uh, Khalidou Koulibaly, the captain, and Edouard Mendy, the goalkeeper, are all now playing in uh, in Saudi Arabia. So there are question marks over the level of that league compared to the European leagues that they were playing in beforehand. Um, but they've, they've definitely got one of the best coaches on the continent in, in Ali Ussiso, of course, has steered them for such a long time. I think it's almost seven years that he's coming up to now that he's been in charge there. Um, uh, and once again, they've got they've got a strong spine. Um, Pape Mate Sarr has been impressing for Tottenham so far this season. Again, he's a slight injury doubt with a knock, but they've got um, Pape Gay from uh, uh, from Marseille, Idrissa Garnagay, who's an experienced campaigner. Uh, and I think they've got... They've got the Naus having gone to the final in the uh, in the twenty um, the twenty nineteen edition, and now again here in um, uh, the the last tournament that we saw that they won uh, in Cameroon. So I think they'll have enough experience to to get through that group. Guinea are definitely dangerous. They've got Sehu Jurassi, uh, the Stuttgart striker who's been in incredible form so far this season. Seventeen goals in fourteen Bundesliga games, uh, and Cameroon are a bit of a work in progress. They've they've struggled at times recently so i think that yeah it is definitely the the trickiest group i'd say but i'd I'd back senegal to get out of it uh when we're talking about afcon we're quite often talking about uh the traditional uh sub-saharan africa powerhouses and then the uh, north african powerhouses uh there's they're all back again this year from north africa morocco of course had a great uh world cup uh we'll, we'll want to go far Tunisia often um, come in looking good and then <laughs> struggle to even get past the quarter finals and of course uh, most Salah and Egypt are there as well. Where do we where do we see the Maghreb um, uh, threats coming from from this tournament? So uh, yeah, I think it's definitely there. Um, the other two that I've got marked out as as ones to definitely reach the semi-finals and, and progress along with Ivory Coast and Senegal just mentioned is Egypt and Morocco. Um, I'll come to those shortly. In a way, I don't want to necessarily dismiss Tunisia, but that for me, they're quite a hard watch. They're quite a dour side. You guys will know that from the World Cup when they played um, Australia. Um, I, I'm not too sure that they've got enough in terms of goals to get through the, uh, to get go deep, shall I say. Um, so, 
for, for that point of view, I, I see them less as challengers. Egypt, I think, are definitely up there. They've got so many players from the last time. They've lost two of the past three finals. And I think for me, on form at the, mo at the moment, Mo Salah is the best player in Africa and definitely one of the best players in the Premier League as well. So I think it's about getting the ball to him, driving forward with him. Um, perhaps under Rui Vitoria, they've, they've shed a bit more of the... Uh, the caution and defensiveness that they had under Carlos Quiroz at the last finals. So I think for me, this Egypt may be slightly more forward-looking. There are a few questions at the back with Ahmed Hegazi starting at centre-back. He's been out for a long time with a cruciate injury, so he's just coming back. But they've got Mohamed Amdelmonem at the back, who really impressed at the last finals. So I think Egypt, Egypt will go deep. For Morocco, uh, the concern now is one living up to the hype that they got from their World Cup run last time round and as well the fact that they've got a target on their back and in a way now from at the World Cup they their their play was based on being strong defensively threatening on the counter-attack now at the AFCON it's up to them to take games by the scruff of the neck go forward themselves take the game on uh, against teams that perhaps are going to be sitting back against them, the likes of DR Congo, Tanzania, Zambia in their group. And it's a question of, can Morocco break those teams down, be on the front foot and, and dominate games themselves? Uh, I think they have got the squad to do it. They've definitely got the talent to do it. They've got a settled side from what it was uh, at the World Cup and from, from the last AFCON. So that will be the challenge for them. They've got uh, different options up front this time. Tarek Sudali, who was injured and missed the World Cup, he's there to provide competition from uh, Yusuf Nedri, who's the, who's the main target man striker. So that will be the challenge for Morocco this time around. Um, and I know you and Rob spoke about this on the start in terms of how Ivory Coast will be as a, as a host nation. I just wanted to blow that out uh, to a bit higher uh, level. How is that the African couple of nations going just generally a lot of there's always this typical press that comes out around this time particularly in the UK media where you're around about the negatives the negatives around this tournament the fact that Liverpool will be without Mo Salah for example and other teams will be sure some of their some of their best players and it's often you know the the the, the tournament is often portrayed as, as an annoyance uh, and then you put that in the context of the huge tectonic plates are shifting around world football at the moment with Super Leagues and World Club Cups and all these other things. I mean, is there anything of a, an existential threat or crisis to AFCON in terms of its position in the calendar? And um, or do you think it's kind of in, in rude health? And obviously they'll just want to have a, a kind of an incident-free tournament really in, in the Ivory Coast as to show people that these tournaments can run smoothly and can be um you know popular as well yeah i think i think the problem is caused as you mentioned there by the fact that now so many european so many african players play for european clubs and it's this this problem of them leaving in the middle of the season that that's the main issue um i, I guess the problem is that it always used to be a sort of March time tournament, which didn't necessarily matter too much. But now the amount of players that are going over makes it an issue. The problem for Africa is that scheduling it in particular countries at what is the European summer is now difficult. So in North Africa, uh, where there's a lot of good infrastructure, it's now the oppressive heat that's the problem in 
uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, it will be the rainy season, which is the reason why this one was moved. Uh, they could say that the last one was moved because of COVID so much as well. Uh, but then sort of Southern Africa, maybe the only co country that could host it would be South Africa. And at that point, that would be maybe the perfect way for the European game, because that would be an African winter in South Africa. Um, and the problem as well is the infrastructure that only certain countries can prepare for it. There's been so many different changes of hosts. So the 2025 one was supposed to be in Guinea. Uh, they weren't ready, part of, partly because of their preparations were lacking. And then there was a military coup. So the Africa Cup of Nations decided to take it away from them. So that one's going to be in Morocco. One thing you can say for sure is that that will run smoothly because Morocco have the best infrastructure in Africa, uh, having having invested greatly in, in infrastructure. And after that, 2027 is going to be in um, uh, Kenya, Tanzania and um, Uganda. So they're very excited about that because it hasn't been in East Africa for so long. The problem that you mentioned there is the scheduling. So 2025, that may revert to June, July 2025. But now the big problem that they've got there is Gianni Infantino is scheduled his new FIFA Club World Cup, 32 teams playing in, when do you think it? June, July in the USA. So then there might be a clash between uh, a landmark tournament and a, uh, a new brand spanking new FIFA tournament. I think the problem is that the scheduling is every two years. That happened because AFCON was founded well before the European Championship and uh, obviously through the 60s and 70s and maybe even the 80s and to, to recent years, there haven't been as many African teams going to the World Cup. So for Africa, the AFCON in many ways is bigger than the World Cup because it's something that they can qualify for easily. Well, I say easily, something they can qualify for more straightforwardly, can compete in and then be the best in Africa. I think in the future that FIFA might try and force CAF to host this tournament every four years. They might say, you've now got nine guaranteed teams at the World Cup. This is causing a scheduling issue. There's too much football. Can you make it every four years or maybe even at a push every three? But at the moment, every two, the amount of money that it costs to host it, to build infrastructure, I think that that might be a discussion that FIFA might want to have with CAF in the future. And, and FIFA are very influential in the running of CAF in terms of They've backed the new African Football League, which was supposed to be 24 teams. That was scaled down to 12 teams. Uh, that's a new sort of continental club tournament uh, to rival the African Champions League. So I think that going forward after 2027, it might be the case of, of FIFA trying to put pressure on CAF to have this tournament in you know every three or every four years instead of every two, perhaps. Yeah, and you think uh, it does make sense that with the expanded World Cup, as you say, more African teams qualifying and playing in the World Cup, that uh, it does uh, give hope to some of those uh, those minnows that um, that qualify on a regular basis for Afcon, but uh, but have little hope uh, or had little hope in the past for qualifying for the tournament, and also some of those smaller nations perhaps uh, grouping together like the next edition of the tournament uh, and perhaps hosting that or being a part. Uh, host uh, along uh, along the way. Before we let you go, mate, um, some of those minnows. I mean, we love watching in the big tournaments when a bolter comes through. Uh, there, there's plenty of bolters in the in the African Cup of Nations. Uh, uh, can you pick out one or two that, uh, if we're watching BN Sports in Australia, where the Af African Cup of Nations are going to be broadcast, uh, that uh, that we might keep an eye out for? So I'd say. The great beauty of the 2014 tournament is that perhaps just one win you can get through to the uh, to the next round. That was the case in the last uh, last Afcon where two teams won one game and got through. That was uh, the Gambia, and um, 
and it was Equatorial Guinea as well. I think it'll be tough for Equatorial Guinea to do that, although they've got a chance uh, with, with Guinea-Bissau in their group. Uh, you, you wouldn't necessarily call them an outsider because they're a former winner, but Zambia have missed the past three tournaments. Uh, it was incredible when they won it in 2012. And I think they've got a good chance this time around. They've got decent attacking talent with the likes of Patson Dakar. Uh, there's, there's something romantic about Zambia by the way that they won it 12 years ago. Uh, so I think that those two are the, are the main ones. And then another returnee, South Africa, uh, they've got a good core from, uh, from homegrown players from Mamelodi Sundowns. Uh, they're coming back after missing uh, the 2021 tournament. Uh, so I think that they could cause a surprise and get through Group E, maybe even as the top two. But but I, I think that they're one to keep an eye on as well. Okay. And you, your selection for, for the champion? Uh, I'm saying one of Ivory Coast, Senegal, Egypt and Morocco. If you're going to push me, I think... I'm going to go with Egypt and I'm going to say Mo Salah is going to be, you know, be the driving force. And after losing two finals, I'm say that he's going to get them over the line. I love the story. Fairy tale. Eighth title for Egypt. Hey, Rob, we might uh, um, get you back on in a couple of weeks once the group stage is finished and, uh, and we just reflect on, on what we've talked about and, um, and have a peek uh, over the final two weeks of the tournament, if that's okay with you. Yeah, love to come back and chat AFCON anytime. Excellent. Oh, beauty, Rob. Well, thanks again, mate. We'll uh, we'll make sure we book it in, uh, and and uh, we'll we'll talk to you then, eh? Yeah, sounds good. Rob Stevens from BBC Africa. Stick around. Walk up corner next on Box to Box. Well, 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 everybody's going to buy Hoyt spices. Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt spices. Yeah. Well, this is the first show of the new year, gentlemen, and. Boy, did I pack some Hoyt spices into my Christmas and New Year feeds. How did you go, Derek? Um, give me one off the top, uh, something that you cooked that that really uh, knocked out the family, because I do know that you uh, you do like to get in the kitchen on my barbecue. Well, I, I got your advice, Rob, on that, um, that rub for my steaks that I was cooking at the end of last week. So, yeah, I think you can recap the audience of what that was. But, yeah, we got, we got that all sorted out last week. Yeah, it's delicious. So the easy rub, the rock salt, the four-coloured peppercorn mix, you get the turmeric, the cumin, right. and a few of those other flavours, some cayenne pepper and uh, some olive oil and uh, and squeeze the lemon over just when you finish cooking. Slice it up over your salad and veggies. You'd love that, wouldn't you, Edge? Oh, yeah, that sounds great. Are you getting that in London, Will? Uh, yeah, a bit of that over here, Rob. <laughs> Obviously not. Anyway, if you haven't been down to Hoyts lately, because you've been using all your herbs and spices over Christmas and the New Year, make sure you get to your local Coles, Woolworths or independent supermarket and refill your empty spice jars. You'll be happy with Hoyts. Fill those empties with Hoyts spices, yeah. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyts herbs and spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, uh, great show so far. Uh, really enjoyed listening to Edge and Wilm uh, talk to Steve Price earlier and it was lovely to, for Derek and I to, to have a chat to Rob Stevens about uh, AFCON and uh, uh, what a wonderful tournament that's going to be. But uh, as we bring it home, um, we, we sort of sometimes need to find angles for World Cup Corner to make it uh, fit the name and uh, um, occasionally uh, there's uh, there's an angle that, that 
just presents itself on a silver platter. And, you know, I've said a few times that we've farewelled some of the legends of football uh, over the course of, of this program, Pelé, Maradona, uh, amongst a, a, a lot of others. But uh, one of them passed away this week, uh, and that was, of course, uh, the legend of Brazilian football, the first player and coach uh, to, uh, well, the first person to win the World Cup as a player and coach, Mario Zagallo, who passed away at the age of 92, Willem. And um, you've done a little bit of a synopsis of, of his career um, to, to get us going. Yeah, a proper legend, this guy, Mario Jorge Lobo Zagallo. Uh, you mentioned he was the first to uh, win as a player and coach. He is, to this point, the only man uh, that's been involved in four World Cup triumphs, uh, all of which are with his, uh, his home nation of Brazil. He started as a player on the wing in both of the finals in 58 and 62. In 62, he was a little bit older, but took on a, a pretty considerable role following the early injury uh, to Pelé. He then moved to the touchline to oversee their 1970 uh, success, the third of that that initial triumvirate uh, where he was nicknamed the Professor and the Old Wolf, a pretty canny tactician by all reports. Uh, He was then an assistant to Carlos Alberto Pereira uh, as Brazil again won the World Cup in 1994 and then was again the uh, the senior man as they made the final but lost to France in 1998. So just a whisker away from five involvements. only France Beckenbauer and Didier Deschamps have emulated uh, Zagallo in winning World Cups as player and manager, uh, and he was the last living member of the 1958 side. And this time, Rob, last year when Pelé passed away, uh, we recalled that I think it was Pelé's father who'd been at the, the 1950 loss to Uruguay at the Maracanã. He'd come home in tears and that had had an impact uh, on the young Pelé. Uh, similarly, there was a story with Zagallo in that he was a, a teenager on national duty at that point at the match, uh, as as Brazil lost, so yeah, similarly, it must have had a little bit of an influence on him. And wow, didn't he uh, didn't he go on to make the absolute most of uh, of whatever inspired him uh, on that day? Four World Cup wins. Yeah, I suppose you know, in in the world of, of Brazilian football, so many pale in comparison to to the the legend of Pelé, but uh, it's obvious to anybody who who uh, is interested in the subject that. Pelé uh, was one of, uh, he was a, a very large part of the whole, but people like Zagallo were, uh, were were critical in, in making it all happen. I mean, for him to be able to to pull together the uh, the side that contained Pelé, Jarzinho, Gerson, Tostal, Rovellino, um, and make them play the way they play. I was listening to a podcast about uh, Afcon uh, ahead of our uh, our chat with Rob Stevens and and some of the analysis from uh, some of the the, the retired African players uh, around the ability of of national side coaches to choose an irrepressible player in his chosen position for his national side uh, where he may not be getting the best uh, or the equivalent service that he would achieve at his club. In Brazilian football, it was the other way around where every player was a superstar. Pelé was the best. So to be the genius, the maestro, so to speak, uh, of the football orchestra that was the Brazilian team at its peak, um, you had to be someone pretty special. Uh, You're a huge fan of South American football, um, how will his uh, uh, departure be marked in um, in in the, uh, the land of uh, the uh, the beautiful game? Oh, huge ambassador for Brazilian football, wasn't he? Um, uh, both as a player, then as obviously a coach, and who can forget him leaving out uh, Romario in 
1998 uh, World Cup and playing an injured Ronaldo in the final, which um, a lot of Brazilians remember. But I think it's worth noting that there's not many players, staff for Flamengo and uh, cross the Rubicon and play for Botafogo as well. So he, he did that as well as a player, which was very, very interesting. So now he's a massive name and um, I think a bit of Brazilians, a bit of Brazil's soul has uh, passed with, with this, uh, with this um, um, sad but uh, joyous occasion too because he was 92, he had a good innings mm. and we're celebrating what a remarkable football person he was. Yeah, and he lost his wife in... 2012, been married for 57 years. So um, hopefully, um, if you're a believer, Alcina de Castro, his wife, uh, will be waiting there for him. Uh, Derek is a person who grew up in the heartland of football, um, observing South American footballers as something exotic. Um, his passing is, is being marked uh, in the way that a legend of, of English football would be marked uh, uh, in all of the publications we're reading and listening to. Yeah, that, that's right. And I'm just reflecting on the conversation that we had at the top of the show with Willem about pedigree managers versus sort of um, journeyman managers and he very much comes in the former category that I was sort of saying that isn't really the the recipe for success so he'd obviously he'd done it as a player and then obviously did it as a coach twice in in two very different generations uh, as well I do think that there is a difference between being a great you know um, national manager and club manager in Quite often, iconic players can trans, um, transition into being iconic managers. So, yeah, but he's bucks the trends of that argument we were making earlier that you can have a fine football career and you can take it on and pass on your wisdom and knowledge to uh, to all the generations uh, that came through Brazilian football. So I'm sure he'll be sadly missed. And it's not often we uh, we praise Gianni Infantino, but he uh, he does occasionally uh, uh, pop his head above the parapet and say something that uh, that lands well. And on this occasion, he has he said that Zagallo's influence on football and Brazilian football in particular is supreme. In times of need, Brazil looked to the professor as a calming presence, a steering hand, and a tactical genius. He will be remembered as the godfather of Brazilian football, and his presence will be sorely missed by everyone in the game, but especially here at FIFA. Well said, Gianni. All right. Well, Willem, welcome back. Uh, I'm going to take a, a, a sit on the pine and you're going to uh, steer the stoppage time ship later in the week. Yeah, back later in the week. And I apologise off the top. I promised a bit of A-League action throughout the show. Didn't quite make the cut. Rob, it's been that busy with AFCON and the Asian Cup less than a week away, but there is a bit of room for that in stoppage time. So tune in later in the week. Excellent. Well done, Derek. Thank you. Thanks, Jens. And Michael, you must be getting very, very excited about uh, the Asian Cup kicking off, mate. So um, enjoy these last few days of the countdown. Thank you, Rob. Yes, I am. And uh, everybody, enjoy your football. And to our good friend Adam Maloney, who is pressing the buttons and editing the show to make it sound as good as it possibly can. Just a couple of weeks away till he brings his second little one into the world. Counting down the days. Good luck, Adam, and uh, to all your family, mate, and to all of our friends uh, listening out there as we set off the top. A happy, happy new year to you. We hope 2024 brings you all the joy and success, the moments and the big moments uh, of your life. Um, if one of those moments is to listen to Box to Box regularly, please subscribe to the show, Stoppage Time and Offside, wherever you get your podcast. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS and follow us on X, like us on Facebook if you can, and join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.